Let's stand for our scripture reading, remain standing for our prayer. This is Paul's readings from Romans, the first chapter, verse 16 and 17 from the New International. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Good evening. I'm going to begin by asking a simple but perhaps controversial question. Should a Christian teacher in a public school try to influence students for Christ? What do you think about that? Or should Christian teachers just keep their beliefs to themselves? I think all of us, no matter where we work, whatever arena we're in, need to be asking that question about our own sphere of influence. Now, is your faith a personal matter? Is it private? Is it just something you share with others at church that share the same viewpoints? Or does it impact your relationships at work and in the community? And if you do try to share your faith, how do you do that? Where are the lines? How do you do that well? Most non-Christians would say, just keep your faith to yourself. You know, don't try to impose your values on me. You know, you're okay to believe what you want to believe, but keep religion out of the public arena. But Jesus turns that upside down. Listen to what he says, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled out thrown out and trampled by men. We know salt has a a number of uses. It's good to help food taste better. It melts ice. It's used to create thirst. But in the first century, in Jesus' audience, salt was used primarily as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration. So when they caught fish, if they wanted to keep them, they would use salt to preserve it. We still buy country hams that are salt-cured. Kind of takes us back, though, because we don't eat that as much. But when Jesus said that you're the salt of the earth, think about what he was acknowledging. That our world is decomposing. It's in a downward spiral. We live in a fallen world. And left alone, the culture will always deteriorate. I think it was Timothy who wrote that evil men will go from bad to worse. And so Jesus is challenging us right off the bat, early in this chapter, that that our job is to preserve truth, to be this light, to permeate the world and help maintain wholesomeness in our culture. Jesus said if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and, and trumped on like sand on a path. And that's what they would do because when it got that point, it was like gravel. But now technically, sodium chloride cannot lose its saltiness. But the salt mined from the Dead Sea was so polluted with other minerals that it would lose its preserving abilities. So the point is well taken. If a Christian becomes polluted by sin and the philosophy, the thinking of the world, we too lose that preserving ability. What Jesus was saying is there's nothing distinctive about you. If you've not been turned upside down by this good news, then you're worthless. You're you're really of no value. Becky Manley Pippert wrote a book 
became a bestseller. I love the title, Out of the Salt Shaker. And her premise is, for those of us who are Christians, we aren't to remain only in church circles, but to make sure that we put ourselves in a venue, in a situation, in a group where we are routinely rubbing elbows with those who don't belong to Jesus. Salt permeates the meat to preserve it, so we are to do the same quietly, unnoticed, just like salt. But our purpose, our true function, is best when we're out of the container or out of that salt shaker. I think about a public elementary grade teacher where my children went to school who always played Christian music during recess. I think that's being salt in a world of education. Or maybe you go to a doctor's office and you're, you're waiting and you see some of the reading material and there's some that's overtly Christian. The message of Christ is there. That's being salt in the medical community. Or maybe even here in the Bible Belt, you're watching the weather and the weather person will talk about, now when you go to church in the morning, take your umbrella. I think that's being salt. We appreciate that. If you're in public service, medicine, education, sales, media, wherever you are, you are to be salt of the earth. Now, we don't have to be argumentative. We can do it in an attractive way. We can do it in a way that uh, creates a thirst for God, that adds flavor, that makes people want to be around us. Jesus used another example to illustrate how we are to influence our society. Verse 14 of Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This light is to illuminate the possibly dangerous path. So really, Christians are to be luminaries, like all sprinkled away, pointing the way, the path to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, that's a messianic prophecy, but if we are following Christ and His footsteps, we do the same thing. And if I were to ask you, how did you become a Christian? What was the motivating factor? Would any of us say, well, you know, one day I found a Bible and I picked it up and I read it and I was convinced. Now, that does happen, but most of us will say, well, it was my mom. She was such a good influence on me. Or maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was my youth minister. You know, I've been taught by a lot of people, but that one person, they just connected all the dots. We point to that one who is that light, who shows the path, that Christian example. And Jesus is saying to all of us, your testimony, your influence, your story is not to be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You, you put it on a stand. You put it up high. You put it where everybody can see. In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know, just a few weeks ago, we hosted Mule Day. People and mules from all over the country converged on our beloved town. No matter where you went, you see those buggies and those trailers. Uh, they were everywhere. And what's not noticeable as much, and when they all line up for the parade, we expect that. But what we really notice is the days before is when they're showing up and they're riding down the road. And you're thinking, nowhere else but Columbia, Tennessee. And you think about the hundreds of hundreds of people who come for that, and they just permeate the whole county. You know it's Mule Day, they're here. Think about there are hundreds and hundreds at our church. And 
when we're together, maybe that's not when we make the brightest light as much as when we disperse and we go into the community and let our light shine. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Now, some misinterpret this and say, well, that means I never really have to say anything. You know, I just do right and have a good example. That's letting my light shine. And I think the example does come first. But you have to win the respect before you have the right to be heard. To be able to voice and, and articulate what you believe. See, there are two essentials to letting your light shine. One is that positive example, and the other are your words. Why do you believe? And what do you believe? You're speaking up for Christ, and both are needed, or God doesn't get the glory. Think about it like this. I began talking about a school teacher, so I'll go back to that. Let's just say a Christian school teacher goes out of her way to be kind and, and especially patient with her students. And it's been a good year. She stays after school to help. She goes over the material again and again until everybody gets it. I mean, they're struggling, but she's a good teacher, and she's thorough, and she's patient. She writes notes of encouragement. I mean, she's loved by her students. But if during the course of the year, if she never says anything to indicate her allegiance, you know, the end of the year can come, and they can write a note, and they can just say, you know, thanks for being a good teacher. She gets the credit, but God doesn't. They don't know she's a Christian teacher. I think that's the very thing we're not to do. Jesus said, if you give a cup of water, you will receive your reward. No, he didn't. What he says is, if you give a cup of water in my name, you receive a reward. That's key. In my name. Somewhere along the line, when the student says, thank you, teacher, for being so patient with me, you could just, a little side comment, you know, well, the Lord's patient with me, and I just try to pass it on. You look for a way to let the light shine, or, or maybe say, I do that because I'm, a, because I'm a Christian, or I do that because you're going to go straight to hell if you don't change. You know, just something kind of subtle and tactful, but you get the message across. Well, here's the question. How can we be salt and light most effectively? Last week when we began this study about upside-down kingdom and what it means to follow Jesus Christ, we, we talked about the first four of these Beatitudes and how they talked about a relationship with God. The next four focus on a relationship with people. And they suggest very practical ways that we can be this salt and help preserve the truth of Jesus Christ. How you can, as the Bible says, most tactfully declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So if you're following along in the blanks, the, the, the fifth one is, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. No doubt, but one of the best ways we can influence the world for Christ is to show mercy to the hurting. That's so attractive to people. Many unbelievers reject our message as being irrelevant. They will dismiss Christians as being hypocritical. But there's one virtue that impresses everyone in the world. When you go out of your way to be merciful to someone who's hurting. Jesus told the parable about the man who was mugged on the way down to Jericho. The priest and the Levite passing by. The Samaritan, the outcast, is the one who stops and helps him. Bandaged his wounds, took him to a nearby hotel, inconvenienced himself, paid for his lodging. And then Jesus asked the question, who did the right thing? Everybody knows the answer. Of course he did the right thing. 
Even the most cynical skeptic instinctively knows mercy is good. It's a beautiful thing when you see it in action. Even the most liberal postmodern mind appreciates just the rightness of helping someone in need. You know, it's not uncommon. You're watching the news and and there's a a tragedy that they will talk about. Maybe somebody's house burned down or maybe they were in an accident or or maybe it's a, a, a rare illness. And it's especially tragic when it happens and maybe the person's between jobs or they don't have insurance. And so part of the story... There's been a fund set up and it'll share the bank account where it is. And people who don't even know the, the, the strangers give money. Why? That's, that's merciful to the hurting. It's instinctive within man's heart to help those who are hurting. I think one way to influence the world is just by consistently treating people with love and compassion of Jesus Christ. My brother-in-law serves at a church whose food pantry serves about a thousand people a, uh, a month. It's, it's no small undertaking. And it's a, it's a good-sized church, but, but people line up to, to receive help. Sometimes even getting there the night before. And the church takes a strong stand on biblical and social issues, but if you go within a six-mile radius of that church and ask about them, they will say, that's the church that helps people. That's what they're known for. Jesus says, by this shall all know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. It will be second nature. That's who we are. That's our identity. To be merciful. And we're merciful because we've received mercy. In Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see those Gatorade commercials where it's black and white, except for the Gatorade And it'll be like bright orange or just that bright green. And and the athlete is just exalted, exhausted. And so they they drink it and they start sweating green. You know, or it's orange kind of makes you want to drink it, doesn't it? But the whole idea there is that you are just so full of God that it's just oozing out of your pores. You're just so full of Him. You've been changed by Him. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It's a good question. It's a real question. Do you know someone who's struggling financially? Help them. You may not can help them much. You may not can pay the whole bill. But you help them. You give money to those who are in need. Do you know someone who maybe has a special needs child? Give them a gift certificate to a restaurant. Volunteer to help keep their child so they can go. Do you know a person who has severe health problems? Send them a card. Tell them you're thinking about them. Tell them you're praying about them. Do you know someone who's having marriage trouble, maybe difficulty with a teenager? Pick up the phone and call them. Tell them how much you love them and appreciate them and you're praying for them. Is there someone who's wronged you? How do you deal with that? Don't demand justice. You be merciful is what Jesus is teaching. You forgive them. In fact, you be kind to them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think one of the tangible ways you'll receive mercy is when that unbeliever will be more receptive to your message. Well, next Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. To be pure in heart just means to have pure thoughts. It means to have genuine motives. There's a consistency between what you say you believe, and how you behave. Your beliefs and your behavior, they're in tandem. 
A person who's pure in heart is sincere. They're authentic. They're real. When Jesus met Nathaniel, he said there was nothing false about him. That, that's, that's a good thing to say to somebody. You know, we might say there's not a phony bone in his body. They're real. They're authentic. And people can't say that about every Christian. Popular speaker and teen analyst Josh McDowell uh, studies youth and teenagers and in the Christian circle in the biggest sense of the word. But, but he, he shared these statistics that indicate claiming to be a Christian really makes no difference or little difference in behavior. 74% of Christian kids say they cheat on tests at school. 74% Christians. 83% say they lie to their teachers. 93% lie to their parents. 63% say they become physically violent toward others when they're angered. Now contrast to those who don't claim to be Christians, 4%, give or take. Not that big of a difference for those who wear the name of Christ. What he's saying there, it doesn't matter how much you talk about your faith, how much you know, you're wearing the t-shirt, how much you're going to church. If your behavior is not reflecting, you've lost your saltiness. Your light's gone out. We've all heard of the man who says a prayer at church on Sunday and then goes to work on Monday and curses like everybody else. It's like, don't bother inviting anybody to come to church with you. Because they see the inconsistency there. On the other hand, the world respects people who are, as Jesus is pure in heart, genuine, real. And they may not understand all about what it is, but they'll say, you know, she's for real. Or he has a good heart. And that's attractive to people. And they can usually tell. Several years ago, the newspaper ran an article about Kenny Perry, pro golfer. It spoke of his recent success on tour. Then it said this, but don't think it changed, Perry. There might not be a more genuine good guy on the tour. It went on. This man who had lived in the same house for the past 15 years in Franklin, Kentucky, population of 8,000. This is the man who, because it, there wasn't a decent golf course in Franklin, he took out a $2.5 million loan and built Country Creek, the layout that Perry hopes will remain affordable for everyone. This is the man who borrowed $5,000 from an elder in his church to give uh, the PGA's qualifying school one more chance back in 1985 with the understanding that if he made it, he'd pay it back with interest. The result was a scholarship fund at Lipscomb University. To date, he's given $550,000 to this fund. And, but you know what else? It's not named the Kenny, the Kenny Perry Fund. It's called the Simpson County Scholarship. You know what he said? I don't want my name on it. It's for the kids. You want to be salt? You want to be light? Just be real. Be pure in heart. Be consistent in what you say. Be humble in how you live. Maybe your impact won't be as significant as Kenny Perry's, but you can make a contribution. You can help light the way for somebody. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And the truth is, God will be seen by them through you. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The peacemakers, they bring reconciliation between two parties that are at odds with each other. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He's the ultimate peacemaker between God and man. He did an amazing job with that, bringing the two together. 
But peacemaker is not the same thing as peace lover. A peace lover just likes to smooth things over. A peacemaker makes things peaceful. And sometimes that's not an easy process. Sometimes you make peace by stepping in when there's conflict with two people who are not getting along and helping them to work through it and to be better because of it. Do you recall when David and his angry warriors were galloping toward Nabal? He had slighted them, didn't give them what they they should have, and he, he was arrogant toward them. Nabal's wife saw what was happening, so she intervened. She sized up this coming situation. She fixed a meal. She went out to David and his warriors, fed them, became this peacemaker, apologized for her husband's actions, pleaded for forgiveness. She diffused the hostility. She kept the war from happening. David said in 1 Samuel 25, 33, May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day. Abigail was a a peacemaker. She put herself out. She made the sacrifice. She didn't make the mistake. But she was the peacemaker here. She sacrificed her pride and she avoided a great tragedy. David was so impressed that when Abel died, just several days later, he asked Abigail to marry him. Sometimes you make peace by avoiding the, the potential conflict with someone else. Somebody insults you. Somebody cheats you. Somebody does you wrong. Our first instinct is to get even. That's just part of being human. But a peacemaker absorbs the hurt, sacrifices self in the spirit of making peace and restoring, keeping the relationship positive. Some of you are peacemakers, and you may feel like nobody knows it but you and God. Nobody knows the times where you swallowed hard and bit your tongue. Nobody knows all that you've done because you don't keep score. You don't harbor grudges. You wisely decide the relationship's more important and you let it go. And it may be that your mate doesn't perceive it or maybe your children don't see it, but you have a healthy relationship and your life is blessed and there's peace there. You're not a wimp because it takes courage and strength to do this. You're a peacemaker. And God knows all about what you've done. And actually in time, I think other people see it too. Sometimes you'll say, well, she's a saint to live with him all these years. You've heard that. Or or he's amazing to put up with that. I heard about a preacher complained about getting cheated out of a few dollars at a restaurant. He said, I gave the clerk a piece of my mind. I was about to let her, I wasn't about to let her get by with it. I demanded to see the manager. The manager came over, gave me my money back, and chewed her out. He was almost bragging about it. But I guarantee he lost the right to ever speak to her about Jesus in doing that. Peacemaking doesn't mean you always let people run over you. You have to stand up for what's true and right. Even Jesus said He came to bring a sword. And He did just that. But I think in this case, it had been so much better if the preacher had just said to the lady, just called her and said, I think there's been a mistake here. And if she still didn't cooperate, say, it's okay. There's some things more important. I'll let it slide. Sometimes you can be the peacemaker by just absorbing the loss. And I think in the course of time, the world sees this. They see this about you. They see this in your character. And they know that you're different. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. See, it's not just God, people. Well, see, you know, they take note of that. And they know you belong to Him. One another. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be blunt, sometimes we suffer not because we're righteous, but because we're obnoxious or we're wrong. Or we made the mistake and we're just paying the consequence for our mistake. One time a television evangelist was claiming he was being persecuted because he was being investigated by the Security and Exchange Commission because he was selling some bonds that were fraudulent. <laughs> he wasn't being persecuted. He was dishonest. He was caught. But look again at Jesus' words, verse 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Sometimes when you're merciful and you're pure and peaceful, you're odd. And you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. And who you are, I mean, your standards tend to incriminate those who are around you and it becomes obvious. And they're going to attack you. Jesus was perfect and He was put to death. Not everybody can appreciate that. And if we seek to follow Him, some opposition is going to come. We should anticipate that. I think about Phil Robertson, removed from the show, Duck Dynasty, for a while because he made comments uh, against homosexuality uh, being married. He was later reinstated. We know the story, but not without some scrutiny. See, sometimes when you're called to be salt and light, you're the victim of intense opposition. And people will pick you apart. But Jesus is saying here, if you're persecuted, don't whine. Don't cry foul. Expect it. Realize it's going to come. In fact, he says rejoice and be glad. He gives three reasons. First, you're in good company. That's the way the prophets were treated. Secondly, your reward will be in heaven. It'll be even greater. And then third, when the world sees us respond, not with retaliation, not like everybody else, but instead with joy, they're going to be intrigued by that. And ultimately, they'll see Jesus Christ in the most attractive way. Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi, beaten by the jailer, put in stocks in this inner dungeon. But instead of complaining to the jailer, I've done nothing wrong, I haven't broken the law. They don't complain. You remember what happened? They sing. They rejoice. Now I'm sure that jailer had heard every colorful word known. But had he ever heard singing and praises from the dungeon? How odd that had to have been. The earthquake came. You remember. Shook the whole prison. Doors flew open. The guard knew that he was responsible for everyone, so he was as good as dead, so he was about to take his own life. Paul stops him. And his response, you remember, what must I do to be saved? Why would he ask that? Why was he so receptive to the gospel? Had he been listening to their praises, to their singing, to their message? In that moment of desperation, their hearts were open. Why? Because Paul and Silas were odd. They were strange. Instead of complaining like everybody else, they rejoiced. And they worshipped. One preacher told about one time he received a phone call. 
he was asked, did, did you go to, and it mentioned a certain football game, and said, yes, I did. So a friend of mine met you there and sat near you, and he said he was really disappointed because you used the F word the whole game. Well, that, that was a shock. The preacher was stunned. He said, well, you know, I'm, you know, I did say fumble once. He said, but I don't use that word. And so I, I, I don't know. In fact, I need to apologize. Would you have that person call me? He never did. What's interesting, though, and, and you probably know this already, he went on to say, how in the world did that guy come to that conclusion? Did he hear, overhear somebody else and think it was me? He said, well, it's so unlikely, though. Is, he says, when I go to the, the game, the language just amazingly just cleans up. That's the reality of it. When you're falsely accused, how do you handle that? How do you deal with that? You don't rejoice over it. Usually we're caught off guard. We don't expect it. We didn't see it coming. Typically our first reaction is to defend ourselves, even to retaliate. Most of us, I think, or maybe just me, I, I, I'm not like Paul and Silas, I don't think. I don't think that would be just instinct. We have to go even further to be like Jesus. We have so far to go. Jesus, falsely accused, didn't retaliate. The Bible says, Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. No wonder when Jesus died, you remember that moment on the cross, the centurion taking it all in, just watching Jesus through this, this horrible experience, say, surely, this was the Son of God. It was so clear. So our challenge for all of us is to make an effort not to get defensive, not to become sarcastic when this criticism comes our way, when we're ridiculed, when we're mistreated. You're not invited to a get-together because maybe your party standards aren't quite loose enough. Don't feel excluded or not popular. You rejoice and be glad. Or maybe if you're criticized as being intolerant or ignorant because you follow the Bible and you really believe it, you hold it true. Don't be wounded. Don't let your feelings be hurt. Don't even let the relationship be hurt. Instead, you rejoice and be glad. If you lose a bid in business because you don't, you're not manipulative, you're not deceptive in your practices, you're honest and you're as low as you can go and don't bemoan the fact that, that others are getting ahead and they're getting richer. Instead, you rejoice and be glad. If you're single, partly because you've kept high standards of wanting to walk with the Lord and you would only commit your life to someone who's also committed. God knows your heart. Rejoice and be glad. Listen how the message paraphrases this section. Count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Now, I really haven't spoken to it yet. We talk about our influence, our salt, our light, in the church, at work, in the community. But it really starts at home. 
In fact, that may be the place where you can let your light shine the brightest. Parents, you are to be the salt and light to your children. Older siblings, the salt and light to those who are younger than you. When I started preaching full-time, I had several older men that I would go to for counsel and still listen to them. One man shared a story that has stuck with me. He had a picture of a Sunday school class. Do you remember the one that we have of our church? I think it was 1928. It's all the men on the front steps. It's a neat picture. It was similar to that, except for it was a little newer. It was 1940. and was much smaller. Only 30 people. It was a small rural church. It was a small Sunday school class. But he talked about the people in the class. He would ask, what difference could these unimpressive, everyday people make. He acknowledged that in the picture there's only one college graduate and that was the preacher. But he didn't talk about some of the people in the, in the photo. He talked about a, a couple. They had a daughter who currently trains missionaries. Her son is involved in a church planting in another state. Her daughter and her husband are missionaries in Southeast Asia. Then he would move to another couple in the picture who decided just after that picture was taken that they would go to a Bible college and, and get a degree and go into the mission field. They spent three decades as missionaries to Japan. And then he would go to a third couple. In his words, very unimpressive, very unglamorous people. Their son became a preacher and ministers in North Carolina. The lady had a sister. Kind of one of those things you don't want to talk about. But the lady had a sister had a baby outside of marriage. The lady took her in, reared her as her own child at much inconvenience. But that grandniece had a son who's now a deacon and an influential leader in the community, largely because in a time of need and hurt, they showed mercy. And then he moved to another man in the picture. He has a granddaughter who became a missionary to Alaska for several years. His grandson became the preacher in Ohio. And then he talked about why he had a copy of the picture in the first place. His own mom and dad were in there, along with his sisters. His one sister, she was an effective Bible teacher even today. He said, but that couple, his mom and dad, would go on to have two boys, him and his brother, both preachers, and three sisters. I mean, three daughters, three sisters to him. Two of them married ministers. The other one married a banker. Became an elder in the church, a trustee at one of the Christian universities. That minister had a son. The minister in the picture had a son, became the two-term governor of the state, ran for president of the U.S. He said, I've shown people this photo through the years, and they would say, wow, that must have been a church on fire. But according to his mom and dad, no, it wasn't. Not really. It was small. It grew very little. It had its problems. He said, but in that church, there were some individuals who were serious about their faith in God. Who were serious about this upside-down living of Jesus Christ. And knew that the most influence they could have started at home with their own children. When someone looks at your picture 60 years from now, 
What will they say about you? What will be your legacy? Be distinctive in word and deed. Be salt. Be light. Peter calls us in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We're going to stand and sing a song declaring the praises of Him. And tonight, if you're ready to heed the call of Jesus Christ, to have your sins washed away, we always have the water ready. Or if we can pray for you to be salt and to be light, why don't you come as we stand and sing?